I'm Ludded Lopate. 1914 was one of the pivotal years in our country's history. The United States was emerging as a world power, and many Americans look forward to a future defined by a more extensive involvement by their country in global affairs. But there were also profound disagreements about the kind of role Americans should play on the world stage. In his latest book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future, award-winning historian Neil Longto describes the contentious debate over the possibility of U.S. intervention in the First World War and what it meant for the future. It's published by Riverhead Books, and it brings Neil's La- Neil Langto to our show now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. You begin your book in Chicago in the summer of 1912 with the National Convention of the Newly Formed Progressive Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party. Um, how important is that to the story that we're telling here? Well, in that prologue, I was trying to set the book up as being about three progressives. You know, it's a word we hear quite a bit about today. The progressives of the early 20th century were a little bit different, but basically it was a reform era. And the beginning of the book starts out with the nominating of Theodore Roosevelt on this new third party ticket, the Progressive Party, also known as the Bull Moose Party. And Jane Addams, one of the foremost progressives in the country, being one of the individuals who gave the nominating speech that day. And then at the same time that Roosevelt was being nominated for president, Woodrow Wilson, another progressive, at least represented the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, was was accepting his nomination uh, that day. So these three individuals were, were all very much part of this movement And it seemed in 1912 that the country was going to continue kind of embracing progressivism and reform in the United States domestically. But all of a sudden, two years later, you have this unforeseen global war, and that changes everything. And then you have this division among these three great progressives, Wilson, Roosevelt, and Adams, um, all who knew each other very well and all who respected one another on some level, but would come to very different conclusions about how we should respond to this war. Well, the Progressive Party uh, convention was said to have had the feeling of a religious revival. How did it differ from uh, what the Democrats and Republicans were doing at that time? Well, those who were hardcore progressives, they really, again, use a moderate, some modern parlance, drank the Kool-Aid. I mean, they they lived it. They, they, it was almost like a religious movement for them, you know, that we're going to fix the ills of American society. I mean, and the ills of American society in the early 1900s were basically uh, unchecked capitalism. I mean, these giant corporations that were taking over the country, unchecked wealth, um, the feeling that the cities were getting larger and larger and unable to deal with the problems that were uh, that they were faced with. And also the immigration problem was another issue. People, but, millions of immigrants were immigrating from Southern and Eastern Europe. So they caused similar tensions to what we see today from people who feel threatened by those kinds of changes? Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. There was a feeling that these, this current crop of immigrants were, could not assimilate into American society. And there was a great deal of concern about that. Now, Jane Addams, one of the principals, was someone who was very involved in trying to ameliorate the difficulties that the immigrants faced, you know, in her home city of Chicago. But that was a very big hot button issue in 1912. You know, the immigrants coming here and whether they're going to be able to assimilate and shouldn't we stop immigration? And these battles will be fought over the next 10, 15 years um, in the United States until immigration restrictions are going to be set in the 1920s. 
And when the, the European war begins, you're going to see immigration really be almost shut off. It's just not feasible anymore for people to come across the ocean in the middle of a war. So immigration will slow down once the Great War begins in 1914. But it's an issue that a lot of people are concerned about at the time. Was there a sense that uh, the uh, this was the beginning of the American century? I think so. I mean, I think America was flexing its power um, as a nation. And that's that's sort of what one of the, the issues are going to come up when the war begins mm. in, in, in Europe. It's, you know, we are arguably one of the most powerful countries on the globe. What is our role when there is this world conflagration going on? I mean, do we stick our heads in the sand? Do we do we try to assist uh the, the allies? Do we stay stay on the sidelines and try to simply assist in the peace process? I mean, they're all going to have very different views on this. I mean, Roosevelt will probably get to at some point. Roosevelt believed that we as a great power had to be involved somehow in this war. I mean, that it was our destiny. And if we were if we were worth anything as a country, you know, we could not sit on the sidelines and that we had to do something to show show what we were as a country and a people. But the first Progressive Party convention preceded World War I. Um, did everyone at the convention agree on what causes needed to be fought for, housing standards, child labor, regulation of business, minimum wage? Uh, what about uh, women's suffrage, for example? Well, uh, progressivism is, is, is hard to explain. I, I have a hard time sometimes explaining to my students because it encompasses and overlaps so many different reforms. So one could be for one progressive reform and one could mm. be against another. Um, so there was never, I would say, a consensus over what um, progressives believe. I think there are probably some core things that they all pretty much supported. I think it would be intervention by the, the federal government to ameliorate difficulties. I think most of them probably were on the suffrage bandwagon. And certainly Roosevelt, who was someone who at one point was like, eh, women's suffrage isn't that important. It doesn't really matter, uh, came to believe that, yes, women's suffrage is important. We need a federal suffrage amendment. On the other hand, Wilson, who was a quote-unquote progressive with a small p, not member of the party, felt that women's suffrage really wasn't important, didn't get behind it at all. It took him years finally to support a federal amendment. Um, so there was a lot of difference. I mean, it's just a lot of reform movements all, all operating at the same time under this umbrella. And what happened in 1912 with that party, Roosevelt you know, was hoping that this new progressive party might be the Republican Party of the 20th century, meaning the Republican Party started out as a little party, sort of an offshoot of, of the other main parties, then became the second of the two parties. And Roosevelt and his followers really thought in 1912 that the progressive party is going to be, it's going to overtake one of the two main parties and, be, and grow and grow in the future. As it turns out, that did not happen. Um, and the war in 1914, I think, is going to probably contribute to some of the issues that the Progressive Party had until it eventually pretty much becomes a non-entity by 1916, 1917. Were they still debating over entering the war for the three years that the United States steered clear of, uh, of getting involved in World War I? The debate was, was almost continuous. I think when the war began in 1914, the general sense in the country was we don't need to be involved in this war. America has never interfered in European affairs. But day by day, week by week, month by month, the United States can't help but be involved in this, in this war. Um, and, and some of the major issues that the United States was involved was by trading with both sides, 
uh, and also American travel. You know, American travelers going to Europe are going to be, they're often going to travel on the ships of the belligerents. And these belligerent ships are fair game in some cases from German submarines and Americans are going to get caught in the crossfire and be killed. And this is going to raise all kinds of issues in the United States about American travel and things like that. So as much as many in the United States when the war began are hoping we can be neutral and kind of stay away from it, it's going to prove impossible. When the war began, Wilson pretty much said, you know, we want to be neutral in thought and, and in deed. Uh, in other words, let's not get behind either side. And of course, that was ridiculous. It was it was it was pie in the sky thinking. But Wilson, you know, sometimes he could be unrealistic in his thought process um, because Americans are naturally going to take sides. You have many, many people of German descent in the United States who are going to support the Germans, at least initially. You have a lot of Irish in the country or certainly are no fans of the United Kingdom and are going to probably lean more towards the German side. You have many people on the East Coast who have more stronger connections to the allies, and they'll be rooting for them. England, France, and Italy. That's correct. That's correct. And then you have people in the Midwest and the South who are, it seems so far away to them. They're not that concerned. They don't travel internationally, and they can't really see what's important about it. But there is a fascination in America about the war. I mean, um, it's almost as one, I think Jane Adams made this comment. So many Americans, it was like a baseball game, you know, just following what was going on from day to day, because the newspapers are just full of coverage. I mean, from the day the war begins, the American newspapers just, just are piling on, piling on coverage. Uh, their, their Sunday papers have all kinds of photographs. I mean, Americans are just fascinated with this war. And of course, it's a unique war, an unprecedented war that no one had ever seen before. Um, and Americans are very, very interested in what's going on. Now, and where did, track, where did the ahead. Republican candidate, William Howard Taft, who was running for re-election, stand on the matter of American neutrality? In 1914, Taft in 1914 probably would have said, you know, we should be neutral. Uh, Taft, once the war began, seemed to support more of what, what Wilson was saying, which was being neutral. And of course, Taft and Roosevelt, who had once been great friends, had a, had a great falling out. So uh, it was killing Roosevelt that Taft was pretty much following Wilson's viewpoint on this. So Taft is, is actually does the statesman-like thing when he's out of office. When Wilson comes in in 1913, Wilson gets elected in 1912, um, Wilson, Taft pretty much says, you know, the only thing we can do is support the president, stand behind him. Meanwhile, the other living ex-president is Roosevelt, who detests Wilson and is constantly, constantly attacking him. Uh, I mean, it's personal, I think, on some level, and it's philosophical on others. But um, that's what's what's going on during the, the pre-war years. I mean, the war in Europe is on, but before America gets involved in 1917, you have almost two, three years of Wilson and Roosevelt going at it, and then sort of Jane Addams occupying the center. What a, uh, between these two extremes. What about Eugene V. Debs, who the socialist who ran for president in the 1912 election? Where did he stand on the issue of U.S. neutrality? Well, Debs would have been opposed to the war, of course, as a good socialist. I mean, this is, that's for capitalists to get wealthy. So Debs was, of course, opposed. Uh, and of course, when America gets involved in the war later on, you know, we're talking 1917 and uh, our involvement in 1917, 1918, uh, Debs went to jail. Uh, he was arrested on the Espionage Act because he gave a speech saying something to the effect that, you know, young American men don't deserve to be cannon fodder so that capitalists can get wealthy. So, uh, yes, he was opposed to any kind of involvement. And that would be the, the, certainly the 
typical socialist view, the doctrinal socialist view that he would have embraced. But you frame the debate as being a three-cornered contest, and you give us a character study of three very different individuals. I learned in my high school history class about the rivalry between Roosevelt and Wilson and their different positions on American neutrality, but you write that it was Jane Addams and not Wilson who was the strongest opponent to the hawkish Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, I mean, Adams was somewhat a very interesting person. Even though she had delivered the seconding speech for Roosevelt's nomination for the Progressive Party's presidential candidate, as you said. Jane Adams was was a pragmatist, and she's someone that a lot of people don't know about in the 21st century, although in in the 20th century, early 20th century, she was probably one of the most famous women in America. She's probably maybe number two to Helen Keller, you know, as far as a household name in America. And she was someone who had been involved in the settlement house movement in Chicago with Hull House and assisting the immigrants, and then later on became involved in just about every liberal cause. So she was a one of the a, really a, a liberal force in, in America in the early 1900s. Um, she did support Roosevelt in 1912 and the Progressive Party because she was a pragmatist. I mean, she didn't like everything Roosevelt stood for. She didn't like Roosevelt's militarist standpoint on certain things. But for the for the 1912 election, she figured, you know, the, the party itself is standing for all the things I've worked for for the last 20 years. So I can swallow Roosevelt. And so she did. But once the European war began, Roosevelt and Adams no longer had anything in common as far as that was concerned. And Roosevelt was very frustrated with Adams. And, he, you know, he called her a silly, silly woman, you know, didn't know what she was talking about. So they, they, there was kind of a lot of uh, bickering back and forth between the two of them. Adams believed that America's role should be to find a way to bring the belligerents to the peace table. She didn't think American involvement militarily was ever a good idea. She felt that it was the 20th century and that countries should be able to solve their problems in sort of a modern fashion by getting together and figuring things out and, and talking it out. And, you know, she felt so she felt America should throw every bit of its weight on the scales for peace. That's what she believed should happen. And her big idea, which has been introduced by some of her colleagues, was some sort of conference of the neutral countries. That would be the exciting kind of a way to get the ball rolling and then introduce the the belligerents to that conference and get them to really seriously talk and have a ceasefire. So, Later, of course, Woodrow Wilson proposes the League of Nations. Yes, Wilson, of course, will will embrace the League of Nations. And he will talk about that during the period before America gets involved in the war. I mean, he will start to broach that idea. I mean, Wilson is thinking internationally. And the interesting thing in, in my book, which I talk about, Adams a lot of, and a lot of the pacifists thought that Wilson saw things exactly the same way she did, hmm. uh, they did. And they kept hoping that Wilson was going to act for peace. He's going to do something for peace. And Wilson and his, his people kept saying, well, it's not the right time. We can't do it right now. Um, and as it turned out, Wilson by, by 1917 came to realize that the only thing that could that he believed could be done was American involvement. He felt that if he and America were going to make a difference in the future world, be it some sort of League of Nations or creating a better peace, the United States had to be involved militarily in the war. And of course, that was very frustrating to the pacifists who had followed Wilson for a couple of years, thinking that he thought exactly like they did. Um, and Wilson really was never a, as much of a pacifist as they thought. He was not someone, though, who like Roosevelt, who wanted to go fight. I mean, Roosevelt 
when the war does begin, wants to go over with a, with a division and try to fight in, in, in the trenches and things like that. Um, that was Roosevelt, but someone like Wilson, who was, who was, you know, just was not the way he thought, not what he was interested in, um, did not see things that way. But he was not someone who was going, also going to be afraid of going to war if he had to. He didn't want to do it in 1917, but he felt for his own personal viewpoint, it had to be done. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Neil Lankto, L-A-N-C-T-O-T. His latest book, something of a departure for him, and we'll talk about that later, is called The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future, published by Riverhead Books. Well, of course, Teddy Roosevelt was, uh, had made a name for himself in battle. He was called a rough rider. Um, and uh, would, you, would you say he was obsessed with manliness and eager for war? I think obsessed with manliness, yes. Eager for war might be too strong, um, I think he did see that as a big part of masculinity. I mean, I th- especially for Roosevelt at this time of his life. I mean, Roosevelt had been president from 1901 to 1909. And then the years outside of the White House are just, you know, not as as fulfilling for him or happy for him. Um, when, when my book begins in 19, 1914, he had, you know, he had been defeated in the, as a third party candidate in 1912. Um, you know, he discovered although, although he did better than the Republican candidate, he came he in. Did, he, he did do rather well, it, it, certainly for a third party candidate. He did rather well. Um, the, the mistake they made in 1912 was thinking it was a progressive vote. It really, I think, was a Roosevelt vote. I mean, mm-hmm. Roosevelt was an enormously popular figure. Um, it kills him that th- the great war is on and he's not present during the war because Roosevelt was someone He's a historian himself. You know, he sees how how important this is, and that he's not in the White House controlling things, calling the shots, and making decisions is very, very you know, it's, it's horrible for him. And he's just frustrated because he feels like he's impotent, that that no one's listening to him anymore, that the people don't seem to seem to want to follow him anymore. So, I think the one thing that was almost keeping him going, you know, while he's sort of this lone figure in 1914, 15, 16, trying to say, you know, America needs to have some sort of role in this war, is the thought that if a war comes, he will be able to go fight in this war somehow, that he'll raise a division and go overseas. Which he didn't like he had do. done with the Spanish-American War. You know, he had raised the Rough Riders. Now, um, but he didn't do that. Uh, didn't Wilson self-identify as a progressive with the brakes on? What would he? What did he mean by that? I think you know Wilson thought that some of the progressives were were too were too far left. Uh, Roosevelt, I think, did too. I mean, their progressives came in all stripes, and some of them were were were, were very very far far left. I think you know by the standards of the time, uh, they wanted things. They almost were drifting towards socialism. I mean, there's a quote I have in the book. Jane Adams. Sometimes people suspected she was a socialist, and she said, "No, I'm. They're they're going too far for me. I think some of their ideas are good, but not that far." Um, I think Wilson was the same way, although I think gradually as he while he was president, he did start moving more and more to the left. And by the time he ran for reelection in 1916, he was pretty open about I am a progressive, uh, you know, I'm and, and those who are against me. You know, the whole country's progressive and, and th- this is the way the country's drifting. And those who are against me are living in the past. So he does embrace it more. And certainly some of his legislative accomplishments were, were, were quite progressive. 
Well, um, he, he certainly wasn't a progressive when it came to racial issues. He ran on a new freedom platform that promised fairness and equality, and uh, that gained him the support from African-American activists like W.E.B. Du Bois and, uh, and William Monroe Trotter, the, the publisher of the civil rights newspaper The Guardian. Um, but he failed to address Jim Crow disenfranchisement. He screened Birth of a Nation at the White House in 1915, and he segregated the federal government. And, and even earlier, in the wake of Roosevelt's decision to invite Booker T. Washington to dinner at the White House and his appointments of black candidates to a handful of minor federal posts, didn't Wilson tell a Princeton University audience that the groundhog hadn't left his hole on that groundhog? day because he was afraid Roosevelt would put a coon there? Yeah, there's no question that Whoa. that, that uh, Wilson's ideas about race were, were, were racist. Um, he was a Southerner. He no was, way. I mean, I, I try in the book to, I mean, the book is not, is not a whole lot about race in Wilson, but certainly I do touch on a little bit. Um, Wilson was someone who, he, yeah, he grew up in the South. He, his family had slaves. And he never could get beyond that kind of mindset throughout his entire life. I mean, there, there was just he was he was trapped in that old South mentality. Again, he was a very he's a brilliant guy. He's incredibly intelligent. But as far as race, when it came to race, he was he was, you know, he was stuck in that view. Um, you know, there's a there's a scene in the book where, you know, in the, in the fall of 1914, uh, Wilson had just lost his his wife. His wife had died right when the war was beginning. And he, Wilson's almost having a nervous breakdown. I mean, there's a scene in the book where Wilson's walking down the streets of New York with his advisor, Colonel House, and uh, and Colonel House kept a diary, recorded everything. Colonel House wrote in his diary that that night Wilson said to him, I wish someone would just shoot me right now. I can't continue like this. I mean, he was so devastated by grief. So he wasn't functioning that well. And in the midst of this, uh, William Monroe Trotter, the, the, the African-American editor, uh, came to the White House to 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 talk to Wilson about the segregation that was going on in the federal government that had be, that had really been ramped up under under the Wilson administration. And what's interesting about this confrontation that it was all transcribed. They had a stenographer there, so it's all documented. You hear the back and forth. And what's interesting is that Wilson, who was who was always this this the the apostle of being self mastered, not losing control of his emotions completely loses it with this with, with with Trotter. I mean, he just he he can't stand that this this African American man is kind of standing up to him about, you know, and kind of confronting him about the issue of segregation in the government. And Trotter actually, if if you read the transcript, the back and forth, it's interesting because Trotter actually tries to educate Wilson and says, look, don't you understand that by segregating us, you're you're saying we're not equal, that we're not your brother. And and Wilson just saying, well, you guys are, are acting like this is caught. This, this, if you're taking it that way, you're taking it the wrong way. He just can't understand that. Um, but you see how Wilson, that was the way he tended to view racial issues through that prism. Um, you have in 1917 after the election, but right before the uh, inauguration, Du Bois wrote to him and said, can you say something about lynching in this country? And Wilson did not. So. Race was obviously very unimportant to Wilson. He married his second wife was probably just as had the same views as he did. Uh, he was stuck in, in in the old South view of things and his administration, the people who were in his administration, most of them had the same views. Um, of the three characters in my book, Jane Adams was by far the most progressive, progressive in a modern sense as far as race was concerned. 
And she was someone who was involved in the NAACP when it when it took some guts to be involved in the NAACP. Wow. It had just begun in 1909. So she was on the racial forefront. She was disgusted by Birth of a Nation uh, when it came out. She she spoke out against it. Um, so, well, it, well, it's a defense of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> yeah, I mean the 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 Klan. I mean the the. the the thing about Birth of a Nation, which I touched on in the book, Wilson, contrary to popular belief, never actually endorsed it. Now, to say he he disagreed with it would be I wouldn't. He probably agreed with every minute of it, but he never actually gave an endorsement of the film. But it was screened at the White House uh, later on when some flat came out. Wilson, Wilson's people said, you know, we only did this because we know D.W. Griffith uh, or no, not D.W. Not Griffith, Nick, uh, Thomas Dixon, who wrote the, the original novel. Um, but the. But I also said in my book that Wilson probably wouldn't have disagreed with any of the content in it because it was the view of the South and Reconstruction that he himself believed in his whole life. So, yeah, I mean, Wilson, that's probably one of his greatest flaws as an individual. And it certainly has cost him his legacy in the 21st century. I think that in his position on, on women and suffrage. I mean, he had a kind of a very old fashioned view about women and, and whether they should vote. Um, he did sort of come around to it more and more later on. But, you know, Early on, he really, really didn't think women should vote, you know, he does or women should really be equal There's a quote in my book where Wilson said something like, well, who's going to make the home? You know, if, if women are out there doing this, that and the other thing, they're not going to be in a position to do the duties they're supposed to do. Didn't he see it as a minor state level concern? He did. He 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 was saying, OK, well, women suffered, let the states figure it out. And of course, that would have taken for years to get all the states to agree on it. So. The, the people really involved in the suffrage suffrage movement were pushing and pushing him to get behind a federal suffrage amendment, what they called then the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. And Wilson would not do that. Um, Roosevelt came out for it. And Jane Addams, of course, was quite happy for that. But Wilson would not do it. Uh, only later on, you know, when, when, when America gets involved in the war, then he's willing to throw his support behind it. But he won't throw his support behind it at this time. What? How long, what was the legacy of his racial policies, the segregation of the federal government? How long did that last? I mean, I think it went on in some form for years. Uh, Wilson's, of course, was 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 particularly egregious. Uh, the Republican administrations that followed him probably were a little bit better. And by the time you get Franklin Roosevelt in there, I think, again, there were, then you start seeing more substantial changes. But what particularly upset African-Americans with Wilson was that he, you know, his administration undid some of the, mm -hmm. the integration in the federal government. So that was that was the big issue uh, at the time. Well, Jim Crow had become an in institutionalized by then. Yes, it had. Um, but the federal government had at least, you know, tried to integrate some of their departments um, prior to. You know, prior to Wilson, really, it says it really clamping down on it. And again, some of the people he had in the cabinet, you know, he they enforced it in their particular departments. And you have people like McAdoo and uh, Burleson and others like that who were who were died in the will Southerners who had, you know, similar views about race as Wilson and perhaps even more extreme. Um, I, I hesitate to, to say Wilson was a hardcore race baiter because certainly he was not by the standards of the time. By the 21st century standards, he certainly was a racist. By 1916 times, he, he there were many worse than him. Did the Progressive Party take a position on race? Well, that was a that was an issue at the 1912 convention about seating uh, Southern delegates 
African-American delegates from some of the southern states. And, and Jane Addams was absolutely furious that uh, the powers that be in the Progressive Party refused to seat them. So it was a it was a huge issue at the at the convention in 1912. Um, the Progressive Party had, a, you know, had a Southern Progressive Party and some of the Southerners down down south were not necessarily in favor of integration. Again, that sort of speaks to my earlier point about progressive progressivism encompassing all kinds of different things. And you could be for one thing and not another. You could be for segregation and still be a progressive uh, because you supported other aspects of the program. So it's a lot of different things. And that's why I think Jane Addams in this book comes out smelling the best, but from a modern perspective, as far as her views, I mean, she really was ahead of her time in so many ways. And she was someone who was so, she was immensely popular up until this point. And when, when, when the war begins in 1914, and she begins to take view, take attitudes and views that much of the American public is not comfortable with, some of her popularity is going to take a beating. And the press at the time will start to really viciously criticize her as someone who should mind your own business. You know, how dare she try to say what Americans, America's policy should be towards the Great War. And she herself will later go across, uh, go to Europe, and she will meet with the heads of state of the warring powers right in the middle of this war. I mean, it's, it's citizen diplomacy like we had never seen before in 1915. So, I mean, she's taking a lot of chances, doing a lot of things that made her very unpopular hmm. because she does believe that there's a way out of this, this nightmare of a war. Uh, and she's willing to take chances, even though, as I said, it's going to cost her her popularity. I mean, all three of them are going to at various times be on the very, the, the kind of be in the target of the American public and press for taking attitudes that many people think they shouldn't take at this time. And we'll get to the war in just a moment. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Before I get back to my conversation with Neil Lacto, I want to let you know that the first two listeners who signed up to become members of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of the book that we're discussing, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future, published by Riverhead Books. You can participate in this offer by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 during today's show. And don't forget to make that $75 contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And we thank you very much. Okay, the, we, we come to the point where the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. And... Um, didn't the outbreak of the war in Europe at the end of July 1914 dramatically intensify the rivalry between hawks and pacifists in this country, uh, bringing their worldviews and the differences between them into much sharper focus? I think that happened a little bit later on. I think when the when the war first begins, there, the, the reaction in America is one of shock. I think many Americans just could not believe that in the 20th century, this kind of 
that's almost like Napoleonic conflict with all these countries, you know, it, it just seemed, it seemed almost impossible that there could be another global, that could be a global war at this time. And the other issue that many Americans are facing when the war begins, are, are Americans trying to get out of Europe? Uh, you have all these all these people stuck in Europe with the war war beginning. They can't get ships. Eventually, the Wilson administration has to send actually ships to Europe to get some of these people home. There's people fighting to get to get passports. I mean, it's it's a real mess at the time. But you argue general, that their starkly different responses to the First World War reflected the unique visions of what America could and should be. Roosevelt and Jane Addams said that many Americans seem to view the Great War as a sort of great sporting event. That is that is definitely true. I mean, there's it's they're so far removed from it, and there is sort of a mindset in America, at least in 1914, when everything there's not direct involvement as far as Americans being killed on ships yet. A lot of Americans think, oh, we're we're protected by by two oceans, so we're we're perfectly safe here. Uh, and there's even quotes from newspapers saying, weren't our ancestors wise to leave that, you know, that awful Europe with all their fighting and squabbling and we're here safe on American soil and, you know, we're, we're quite fortunate in that regard. Um, Roosevelt, who's going to become the most hawkish of the three in this book, when the war began, basically says, well, we should we should stand aside right, you know, right now. And he gives a, he says in his quote, when giants wrestle Inevitably, some people are going to get hurt, but we have to stay. We have to accept that. And what he was particularly referring to was the German invasion of Belgium after the war begins, which was a sort of a later became a PR nightmare for the Germans. A lot of Americans were absolutely appalled by that invasion because there were uh, atrocities. It was what was called the Rape of Belgium. Yes, there were, there were atrocities. Um, interestingly, America, American reporters who went to cover it, some of them came back and said, "Well, the atrocities were." were a bit exaggerated. And, um, and there were some Americans who believed at the time, oh, well, this is all allied propaganda. Much later on, historians have done studies revealing that there were, in fact, uh, atrocities committed by German soldiers. A lot of the German soldiers were extremely overly vigilant. And, and every time they saw a civilian, they were sure the civilians were going to shoot them. And there was, there was quite a bit of some, some real uh, awful behavior by the German forces in Belgium. Um, and enough of that trickled back to the United States, some of you know, these reports that many Americans immediately turned against the Germans. But what you have is the two sides I was trying to wage a PR campaign to win America's hearts and minds for the next couple of years. And that was a big blow to the German side. Um, the Germans were always trying to get the Americans to see, the, see their viewpoint. One of the characters in the book is uh, the German ambassador, Johann von, von Bernstorff, mm. a very interesting guy. Who I was, was going to um, bring him up, partly because he also had affairs with American women on top of everything else. Yes, yes. He was a very interesting guy. He, sp he, sp he sp you know, spoke fluent English. He married an American. But he was born in London. Yep. So he, he was someone who was, was quite, quite, I think he was a, in some ways a visionary as far as the German side was concerned. He knew early on that if the United States gets involved in this war, uh, the Germans are going to lose and the German monarchy is doomed. Uh, he's probably one of the few people who, who has this viewpoint in as far as Germany is concerned. Most of the Germans, when the war begins, think of America as being, oh, it's all they care about is making a buck. Dalerica, that's what they call them. Um, and Bernstorff says, no, 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 this country has unbelievable resources. You know, we really have to keep them out of the war because if they do, we're doomed. 
So Bernstorff is going to almost do superhuman efforts to keep the United States out of the war, all kinds of diplomacy, you know, trying to make, trying to somehow get the parties to not break. Uh, he does succeed for two and a half years until the break occurs in 1917. Um, as you mentioned, yes, uh, Bernstorff's having having an affair with an American woman. Um, some very interesting material I dug up there. The, the, the Wilson administration was doing wiretaps on the German embassy, and I was able to read some of those. And you can see some very interesting things of several American women having affairs with members of the German embassy. And certainly uh, Bernstorff was one of them. So all this stuff was recorded. Um, it's, it went on for a couple of years. Then in early 1917, they put a stop to it. I'm not exactly sure why. There's, there's talk that Wilson's secretary, Joseph Tumulty, found out that some of the wiretaps were also going, they were wiretapping other people who had nothing to do with the embassy. And they were wiretapping some, one of uh, Tumulty's friends. So I think he asked the president to put a stop to it. But it went on for, for a couple of years. And there's pages and pages of these transcripts uh, of the German embassy and the German, um, German offices in New York as well. And you, you, you find a lot of interesting stuff. But something I was not aware of was the existence of these wiretaps and, the, and how many affairs were going on in the embassy with American women. American public opinion wasn't unified either. Uh, we tend to think of it as uh, being opposed to what Germany was doing, but there were people who uh, didn't like the British, didn't want to support the British, didn't want to support the French. Yes, I was surprised by that in, in, in during this book, you know, because we tend to think of World War II, you know, the great friendship between the United States and, and, and Great Britain and, and France mm -hmm. and things like that. Uh, but during World War One, there there was a lot of antagonism in the United States. There was towards no Churchill the working for Britain at that time. I'm sorry. Churchill was Churchill working for Britain? Yes, yeah, <laughs> Churchill was in the, was in the cabinet. He resigned, I think, in 1916. Churchill was there. Uh, there's a quote somewhere from Roosevelt. One of Roosevelt's many many letters, and Roosevelt wrote tons of letters. One of the things when I did the research for this book was just hmm. they're interesting, but he wrote so many. And he, he did make a comment that Winston Churchill's doing capital work for, for the British government. Um, but Will, uh, Roosevelt, um, Churchill did step down later on. Um, but the, the issue that really bothered America was Americans with the, was the trade. You know, Americans believe that you know, we're a neutral country. We should be able to trade with whomever we want to trade with. Now, of course, the Allies and the British didn't see it that way. They didn't like that if America was, say, shipping something to... Uh, I don't know, Copenhagen or something like that. Um, the, the British believe, well, if you ship something there, it could easily be reshipped to Germany and it's going to benefit Germany. So we have a right to intercept um, American ships and see what's in, see what they're carrying. And then if we, we like what they, if, we, if they're not carrying contraband, we'll let them go through. If they are carrying contraband, we're going to confiscate it. We will pay you eventually for it. But it, it was a great inconvenience and annoyance. Uh, the cotton growers were particularly annoyed by this. It was affecting their bottom line, getting cotton to Europe, getting cotton to Germany. Um, so this was a constant source of friction between the United States and Great Britain. Later on, another issue is the United, Great Britain intercepting mail going to Europe. Uh, and there's fear in America that, you know, the British are reading our trade secrets. You know, if letters are going to, to Europe and they're reading them and you know, who, who knows what's going on? And of course, the British, did, they had a whole a whole building full of censors who were reading mail. So there were these kinds of, you know, bothersome stuff going on between the United States and the Allies. 
But it was never enough to really ever result in there being a potential of war. And of course, we were making huge amounts of money shipping munitions to the Allies. The Germans didn't really need our, our munitions. They had their own factories. But the Allies did. And as you pointed out, Wilson initially supported American neutrality, but in April 1917, Congress, at his request, declared a war to end all wars against Germany. Was that partly the result of what Germany was doing? For example, the sinking of the Lusitania in the spring of 1915? Well, what happens in, in late 1916, early 1917 was, you know, the Germans by that point had 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 pulled back on their submarine warfare because they were pretty much threatened with if you continue unrestricted submarine warfare, uh, the United States is going to break off diplomatic relations. And what that meant, everyone knew it was going to mean war. So the Germans had had behaved themselves, so to speak, during 1916. But by the end of 1916, the Germans were like, we can't continue this forever because we have to win this war soon, because if we don't win the war soon, we're going to lose. We can't win a long war. So the Germans were hoping by the end of 1916 that America would initiate some sort of peace effort that could bring the two sides to the table and peace could be reached and Germany would be ideally allowed to keep what they had won up to that point because they were pretty much in the lead by the end of 1916. Wilson saw this coming, too, because he did. He thought that we've got to reach, try to make a move for peace at the end of 1916, because if not, America will be dragged into the war. He does make a peace effort at 19, end of 16. It fails. And then right after that, the Germans say, OK, well, they tried, didn't really do anything. We're going to bring back unrestricted submarine warfare. We know it's going to bring America into the war, but our hope is that by the time they get involved in the war, the war will be over because we will starve England out and the war will be over by mid-1917. That was the master plan. Uh, it proved to be, of course, incorrect. Um, so that was a big precipitating factor. The other precipitating factor was the Zimmerman telegram sent from Germany uh, to Mexico, basically saying, you know, war is probably coming. If you guys type American forces on the border, uh, we'll give you the opportunity to possibly take back some of the land you lost in the Mexican War 67 years before. That is <laughs> intercepted by the British and turned over to the American government. And when that's released, that, that creates quite a sensation in the United States. My guest on today's Leonard Lopit at Large is Neil Lankto, L-A-N-C-T-O-T. His latest book, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and the Clash Over America's Future, published by Riverhead Books. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You've described World War I as the poor stepchild of American history, but uh, was it a signal that the U.S. was now willing to use armed force against perceived threats to world order? I think it was very important. I think the war, unfortunately, has been neglected. You know, when, when, the, when the anniversary of the First World War coming up a few years ago. I mean, you had some some talk about it in the United States, but nothing like you would see in Europe and Great Britain and things like that. Because our you know, our own involvement in the wars is only you know April nineteen seventeen to November nineteen eighteen. So for many Americans, it's just not as not as important uh, to them as say you know World War Two or the Civil War or even you can throw Vietnam in there too. But I believe it's it's so important because the entire 20th century, I think, turns on the results of, of the First World War. And the final outcome of the First World War was very much driven by, by American involvement. If the United States does not get involved in the war, which certainly was a possibility, 
it is not at all inconceivable that neither, either Germany wins the war, that's a possibility, or there's another possibility that neither, neither Germany nor the Allies can win, and they have to have some sort of armistice or stalemate or whatever. And again, that changes the future. You know, there, That means there's no Treaty of Versailles, and there's no uh, reparations imposed on Germany, and maybe there's no Hitler. I mean, so everything could change if the war turns, turns out differently. And this all depends on American involvement. Um, Bernstorff, who I mentioned earlier, Bernstorff said later on in the 20s, he said, you know, Mr. Wilson wanted democracy in Europe. And it's possible that if America had stayed out of this war, maybe democracy in Europe would have been more likely to occur because both sides would not have been able to win the war. And both sides would have been ripe for changes in their government, including Germany after the war. Uh, so there's all kinds of possibilities that might have happened. But that's why I believe this decision by the United States to get involved in the war is so important. I mean, I think the three principles in this book, uh, Roosevelt, um, Adams and Wilson, understood this very much. Um, and that's why they felt it was worth staking their, their personal beliefs on it. So you don't believe that the transformation of the United States into a great military power was inevitable? I do not. I do not. I mean... One thing which is very interesting is how pathetically small our military power was when World War I begins uh, in 1914. I think we had about 100,000 man army, very, very, very negligible. Our Navy was decent. Uh, I think our Navy was maybe second or third in the world at the time, but our army was small. A lot of people believe, oh, America doesn't need an army. I mean, we, we got the Navy, we're good. Um, that's something that's going to change. And people like Roosevelt are going to get behind this whole preparedness movement. The United States, you know, if we want to achieve anything globally, we have to have the force to back it up. And how do we have to have, how do we have the force by having a decent sized military? Um, it takes Wilson a couple of years to get behind the, the whole preparedness movement, maybe like well to 1915 before he kind of comes out finally for it. Because before that, he, he didn't believe it was necessary. Many Americans did not. They felt that was, you know, some sort of European remnant having a large standing army. So that that is a huge change. But interestingly, even though we do build up a massive army once the war, once American involvement in the war begins, um, it, we let it slide again, such that by World War II, we have we have a small army again when World War II is about to break out, only because FDR kind of is a little, it was, it was visionary. Uh, you know, in 1940, right before we got involved in the war, uh, he begins to rebuild our military. But again, by the late 30s, our, our military had shrunk uh, to, again, to a fairly negligible amount. So I don't think it was necessarily uh, inevitable for us to really become a serious military power. But this was a first great step forward, obviously, when we do get involved in the war. And now we're witnessing the possibility of war if Ukraine is invaded by Russia. So... Uh but do you think that the debate will be pretty much the same as it was? About I think some of these issues, they never go away. I, I think that's a really good point you just made, because it's always about what do you know, what is America's responsibility? You know, what is our responsibility globally and militarily? Are, are we supposed to intervene in these things? Is, is, is it our our place as a nation to to quote unquote, do the right thing and to look out for for evildoers and, and I mean to, to prevent evildoers from wreaking their havoc around the globe. If if TR Teddy Roosevelt was alive today, I'm sure he would he would be of course embracing American involvement uh, and, and sending of troops within the Ukraine crisis currently well, going on. I, I was, think uh, I, I've always been a bit confused by Alice Roosevelt Longworth's famous quip about her father. 
my father always wanted to be the corpse at every funeral, the bride at every wedding, and the baby at every christening. Just that he was, uh, he, he was eager for attention at all times? I think he was, he was a larger-than-life personality. Mm. I think that's the, the best way of summing it up. He was, I mean, I, I was left with even more respect for him after I read this book, just from reading his, his letters. I mean, I, I didn't always agree with all of his views on everything, but he was, a, he was ex- extremely, he was a brilliant person. He, he was interested in so many different subjects, um, and, and to read the correspondence he, he, he got from his constituents, you know, people like writing to him, you know, saying like, I, I almost see you as a Superman. Like they, people really believed in him and were, were and were so could, so uh, respected him so much, but he was someone who was, he, he, he certainly in some ways could suck up the oxygen in a room because he was a very dominant figure, but, but I think a likable figure. Now, someone like Wilson was much more low key, but Wilson was not nearly as, as bland as people used to think he was in, in private, he was much more lively, had a really good sense of humor, but a lot of people ri- initially thought he was kind of like an academic type, you know, he had been pr- president of Princeton. Um, but his personality was a lot more outgoing. In fact, one of the things in this book, which I talk about a great deal is Wilson's courtship with mm-hmm. his second wife. And Wilson wrote these just unbelievable gooey lovey dovey letters back and forth to, to her while he's courting her. I mean, all these letters are, 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 are documented and preserved. And some of this is going on in the middle of serious crises. You know, the Lusitania is on and Wilson Wilson's writing two, three letters a day to his, to his, his new, uh, his new girlfriend. So that would have shocked the American public had they known about it. Of course, in those days, you could hide that kind of thing. Pretty, no one knew that he was he was dating someone at the time. We're pretty much out of time, but you do cover an awful lot of other people of interest here. Uh, William, well, uh, William Jennings Bryan, Charles Nordoff, uh, James Norman Hall, Charles Evans Hughes, Fighting Bob La Follette. Henry Ford, when he was a pacifist, um, who sponsored the... Uh, the peace ship mission in 1915. Um, but before we go, and I, we have just about two minutes, uh, I wanted to talk about the fact that this book is quite a departure from some of your previous works, which were about baseball and range from the business side of the segregated Negro Leagues to a biography of Roy Campanella, the Brooklyn Dodger catcher. Um, this is not like, I, I don't see the connection. Uh, probably because there is no connection, actually. <laughs> I felt that I had gone as far as I could go with with baseball oriented topics. As you mentioned, I had done uh, books on the the business side of the of the Negro baseball leagues, and then I had done the Campanella biography, which is sort of a connection because Campanella played in the Negro leagues. Um, but I was looking to to do something more in just general American history and to find something that might might reach more readers. And and I was sort of drawn to this subject by by reading an older book by Mark Sullivan. He was a journalist in the early 20th century who were a series of books, a history of the early 20th century, uh, viewed through his own perspective. And I read some of his books on the, on the Great War, and I realized I didn't know much about it, but that it was absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and that this decision to go to war was so important and really hadn't been written about. And that's what drew me to this topic. And there's an incredible amount of material that you were able to draw from. I, I just uh, was reminded that my father took me to see the Bushwicks play the Black Yanks when I was six years old in 1957, and uh, he said, look out, look at that catcher for the Black Yanks, Roy Campanella. He's really very, very good player. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Well, 
I've always remembered Campanella and then seeing the Jackie Robinson break in with the Dodgers that year. But that's a whole other story. Meanwhile, I thank you so much for being on our show to talk about this book. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. And I'm sorry we couldn't get to even more of the interesting stuff that you have in this book. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 600 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which recently surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, the Apple Channel, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is lendedlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and bringing you the kind of in-depth content that we bring you on a regular basis. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, the first two listeners who sign up right now to become members of WBAI with a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large will receive a copy of the book that we've been discussing, The Approaching Storm, Roosevelt, Wilson, Adams, and Their Clash Over America's Future by Neil Langto. The important thing is that you step up to show your support for Leonard Lopez at Large and for the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Because WBAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, and that allows us to be completely free speech radio. We also hope that uh, you consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20 a month. Uh, as long as you want that to run. Uh, well, so if you tune in regularly to Lend It Lopate at Large, why not let us know that you appreciate what we do on our show by going online right now to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 to play your part in keeping this historic station, the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, alive and thriving with your tax-deductible support. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us again on Friday when our favorite language experts, Catherine and Russ Petras, will join us once again. I hope to see you then.